Okay, thanks uh, very much, uh, my fantastic overview, and also uh, for Simon for having organised the uh, four-part series, which is a, a great opportunity. And uh, I, I can see lots of specialists in this area in the room, so I hope we'll be able to engage you in a, in a, in a dialogue at the end of the session as well. Some overlap with Maya's talk, but I'm going to focus less on the field and the literature and more on the relationship between these ideas of education, higher education specifically, and international development. Um, and as educationists, we're, we're faced with something of a dilemma or an ambiguity. In some of our lives, we're, we're, we're acting as advocates or campaigners for things that we want to see happening. And, and in that, with, with that hat on, sometimes we need to simplify things, make the messages clearer, and to make the positive impacts of, of, of education rather uh, more at the front and centre. And then other sides of what we're doing, we, we can open up the complexities and, and the philosophical and the critical dimensions of it. And this is certainly true with higher education international development. Um, on the one hand, I'm thoroughly supportive of the renewal of interest in higher education that, that Mara alluded to in the last 15 or 20 years, which is a fantastic thing, and it's very important that in addition to the international scholarships, which have never gone away, that there is some interest in the strengthening of domestic systems of higher education uh, all around the world. And I'm a, a very strong believer that every country, however poor it might be, every context needs a vibrant higher education system. And this is not a, a universally accepted idea by any means. I mean, there's a, there are quite strong uh, beliefs out there that you know, a higher education system maybe is only appropriate for a country that has a particular size or wealth or level of development. And I think that's a, a pernicious idea that we need to counter very strongly. At the same time, um, the idea that higher education brings certain positive benefits to society in a very automatic sense is, is questionable. Uh, and in, in the comfort of our university environment here, I, I want to raise some of those questions, and particularly um, the, a rather simplistic notion of how universities might do that, which I think is something rather like a, a, a kind of a combustion engine in a car, that you know, the university is the engine that drives the car of development in this particular direction, and that all we need to do is to put more fuel in the engine, and it will do that. A slightly more subtle version of that being that we need a, perhaps a better kind of fuel. You know, those versions you get at the petrol station, you're not quite sure what, what's different about them, but they've got a better sounding name. So some people will look for those kinds of more uh, skilled interventions, but it's still along a similar lines that we just need to do more of higher education to get more development. Uh, and that's what I want to focus on today. Um, and it is mostly in reference to low living countries, but I think the, the implications are the same for, for any country, including wealthy capitalist countries, which are also seeing universities as, as, as the engines of development um, in, in fairly similar ways. So as, as um, Maya highlighted, we are looking at this in the context of a, uh, of a return of interest, and she's like, I won't go over some of the points that that she's already highlighted. The, the economic research has changed its focus and is acknowledging higher education to a greater extent. Um, in the context of the knowledge economy, there's 
globally been an increasing interest in higher education, not only its, its teaching function, but also its research function. Um, and there's also been a more practical realization in, in the poorest countries of the world that bottlenecks in providing basic services have been caused by underdeveloped higher education sectors. So if you can't fund professionals to train overseas, you're going to have to train them domestically or locally. And normally that takes place in universities. Perhaps it doesn't have to, but it normally does. And so the lack of a university system has been um, hindering primary education, primary healthcare, and all sorts of other things that were contained in the MDGs uh, before the new um, uh, setup. And we have seen, um, perhaps not as much as we wanted, but uh, we've certainly there has been a, uh, an increase of, of, of funding from international agencies, philanthropic agencies, and new kinds of schemes and ones which at least pay lip service to more of a horizontal kind of partnership and the strengthening of domestic systems rather than um, uh, always uh, uh, taking people to the, high, the perceived uh, high quality higher education systems and then returning to operate in people's countries of origins. Um, and all that has led to the inclusion of higher education in the SDGs, which I'm not going to talk about specifically today, but that is part of the backdrop of a, uh, an official endorsement of higher education's important role in development by being written in, again, in, in, a, in quite a watered-down way, but tertiary education and, and the term university both are included in, in, the, in the goals, uh, and that has given a new visibility to the sector. Um, Maya mentioned this study that Moses, Rebecca, and I did a few years ago, um, and this was very much a fruit of that rekindling of interest because this was a study that was commissioned by the British uh, Overseas Development Agency, DFID, uh, to generate a stronger evidence base for its investments in higher education as part of development. So the idea was, you know, what do we know about the concrete impact that universities have uh, in low-income low countries? In this case, the cutoff was in the World Bank classification of low-income and lower-middle-income countries. So it, was only, it, it excluded uh, a lot of countries about which there is a large amount of literature, and it, and it mainly focused on countries where there is a relatively small research base. The first point that came out is that there's very little evidence. We only found 99 studies that fulfilled the criteria of the review, and this is about a similar number of countries, and this is a, over a period of... Uh, um, more than 10 years. So it's a very small amount of literature um, because the vast majority of literature on higher education focuses on internal issues, the quality of the university access and so forth, not on its, its actual impact on society. So it's a relatively weak evidence base um, and it's also very strongly partial to particular areas. So this was a um, not a particularly attractive uh, scheme that we developed that, not in a normative sense, but it came out of the literature. So the elements of this uh, are what, what is in the literature, not perhaps what we think should have been there or the pathways that, that we would imagine that could exist. Um, but the point I want to make here is, is, is that it, it's it fairly narrow in its conception of what universities do. So the outputs that are imagined to come from universities are graduates and research, or perhaps innovation if we, if we expand that a little bit. 
um, and those emerge from the main, the main forms, uh, functions of the university, the teaching, research, and service or community engagement, although there was very, very, very little literature on the community engagement impact of universities. Um, in terms of the number of studies, and, and the numbers here add up to more than 100 because uh, some have had, had multiple foci, but economic growth, income equality were had by far the largest number of studies, and then quite a lot on gender equality, uh, institutions, health, poverty reduction, governance, lower levels of education, and then just a few on population growth and, and environment. And you can see uh, from this, sorry, so it will be uh, very, very hard to see from the back there, but the, um, the green lines are the pathways for which there, there was consistent literature. So most or all of the evidence showed that this was a positive impact on development. The yellow ones are where it was inconsistent, and the um, dotted lines are where we simply don't have enough evidence to make a firm claim. And you can see that the ones that, that the firm green lines are both around graduates and increased earnings and improved capabilities. So we have a pretty firm basis all across the world in, in wealthy and impoverished countries that universities increase people's incomes, or at least, and it's a very important distinction, are associated with higher income. Um, it, there might be some things to do with universities, uh, that going to university, that, that might also be uh, causing. And they also enhance capabilities, which in, in sense terms are both economic and non-economic and, and interactional nature. So that we have a very strong evidence base for. Uh, much shakier uh, in relation to some of other, these other things, in tech transfer, tech transfer, improving institutions of productivity and so forth. But it's... Uh, it's a relatively limited vision of, of what universities might do. And in recent work, I've been working with a, a slightly enlarged range of functions of universities. Um, and education and knowledge production are really teaching and research. So I think it's hard to avoid those being absolutely central uh, tasks of a university. But one that was absolutely not picked up on in that kind of review, and there's very little literature about in low-income countries, is, is the role of universities in public debate. Um, something Simon and uh, other people have, have, have written on. Extremely hard to uh, measure and to attribute concrete influences to, but the role that university lecturers and graduates and, and others involved with universities um, uh, play in shaping debates in, in, and, and engaging publicly and, and changing public opinion is a very important one. Um, Many services that universities provide to communities. Now, some of those are, are explicitly part of community engagement programs. Um, but in low-income contexts, universities have very important functions that, that are often ignored. Space for communities to meet, recreation, sports, culture, even electricity. Um, some functions that, that these institutions play in, in in systems in which there aren't well-developed welfare states are, are incredibly important and, and, and very little acknowledged in terms of the role that universities play. And there is a final aspect of this which I think it's important to, to think about, and we'll return to this again in later considerations, that um, universities aren't only projective spheres, so they don't just create things for the society outside of itself. They are also communities in their own right, and sometimes quite large ones. I mean, some universities have hundreds of thousands of people. 
some of whom have a transient existence, but others, uh, like some of us in this room, may spend decades in a, in a particular place. Okay, so universities are communities that have their own dynamics and are important to think of as communities in their own right. Uh, and an area that Maya mentioned that there has been increasing attention to uh, is the sustainability, environmental sustainability of institutions and, and to try and counter a lot of the hypocrisy of universities saying they promote particular kinds of things and they're not doing, doing them themselves. And I'm pleased to say that, that this institution, UCL, is, is uh, making strides in, in, that, um, in, in that sense. So the embodiment part of, of, uh, of universities is also important as well as thinking of, it, of its instrumental impact. So I think at this stage it's, it's worth taking a step back and thinking more broadly about what the relationship between education and development might be, uh, and then to extend that to uh, a closer look at higher education, or perhaps the universities. We're faced with an extremely difficult task here, uh, because, uh, and I'm afraid I entirely relied on, on my... Uh, very limited PowerPoint skills to, to, to find an image for this. I'm not sure if the COGS one works, but anyway. Um, you know, education and, and, and development are both uh, con concepts that are empirically contested, normatively contested, very hard to define, and most definitions smuggle in normative conceptions. So we've got two points that are moving around. Uh, and Linking moving points is extremely difficult, but also the type of link between them can also be conceptualized in lots of different ways. So there's a, a very, very difficult task. Uh, and really, to, to try and understand the relationship, we have to keep moving between the two of them and, and the ways that they can both be conceptualized differently. Um, there's another point, of course, that for the most part, we as educationists are thinking about how education can promote development. Uh, and certainly when we're seeking funding for education, we are, we're advocating for its, its worth in that sense. But of course, development also is a driver for education. I think it's undeniable historically that changing nature of the economy has created needs for particular kinds of skills that have required particular kinds of education. And also, uh, the growth of the economy has provided the resources both for states and also for individuals to, to fund education. So uh, development also, if we're thinking of development as, as economic growth or, or maybe technological and labour market changes, also, also affects education and, and, and provides a motive. So it is a, it's a two-way relationship. Um, but for the most part, and this is more common in policy circles, national superintendents, but it's even quite common in, in the academic literature, although as, as the discussions around post-foundational um, approaches and, and some other shows, it's not, not universal. But for the most part, um, the relationship uh, between the two is seen to be a, a causal one, a linear one, and an instrumental one. And I just want to open up uh, a little bit uh, how that can be conceptualized differently and, and some alternatives. So what I want to argue is that the driver notion of the relationship isn't the only one we can think of, but that we can also think of education, and I'm going to focus on education uh, and development rather than the other way around. 
uh, is that it could be a constitutive development. So what I mean by this is that um, instead of education causing development, bringing it about, that it might actually be developed, that it, it, it might constitute developed status in, in, in different kinds of ways. And I'll, and I'll go through the, the specific ways that we might think about. But to start off with the more straightforward one, which is the most, the most common the way it's normally conceptualized. So education causes economic growth is the first kind of claim. And this is the dominant one, and it's the major cause of education expansion, endorsed both from a supply and a demand side, endorsement by states, and demand from families and, and individuals. And human capital theory is the dominant theory that, that asserts this kind of link. Uh, human capital theory claims that, uh, amongst other things, uh, skills that can be acquired in formal education as, as, as elsewhere enhance the productivity of workers. That productivity is rewarded by increased salaries, um, which leads, uh, uh, along with other things, along with the productivity itself, to macroeconomic So it's a theory about how education as well as some associated factors of, of, of workers, uh, leads to um, uh, economic growth in, in a causal relationship. Other economic theories extend that endogenous growth takes a rather less individualized view and sees that the way that innovation technology can, can be diffused through a, a population and, and also enhance the economy. But, um, there are economists in the room who might like to comment more on that. Technology is very closely associated with the economic aspects, but we might also think of, of education as a motor of, of all forms of technological development. Um, citizenship um, can be seen in quite different ways, and I've, I've, I've tried to use quite a broad term there to, to, to relate to, to quite different kinds of processes. So education is seen on an individual level as a driver for enhanced political participation. There's, there's a large literature on this, both, both in, in political science but also in education. Uh, empowerment and more effective participation in decision. And there's a lot of empirical evidence to, to show that higher levels of education do actually lead both to, to you know, whether it's voting rates or other, other, other indicators of participation um, but we can also see citizenship from the perspective of, of the polity, and education historically has had a, a very important role uh, in shaping the nation state, national ideology, and so forth. And, and Andy Green's historical work has, has traced that for, for various countries. So we've got education as a driver of, of, of citizenship, civic, civic identity is another, another important one. But I thought within this category, it's also worth mentioning um, that education can have this uh, relationship with development, but in a negative sense as well. So some people assert that um, education, well, critical sociology of education has for many decades, that education has a reproductive function. So it serves either simply to reproduce the social class and income inequalities that exist in society, or, or even to make them worse, to, to, to actually exacerbate so that's um, one of the negative uh, um, functions it might have. 
colleagues in conflict and peace-building studies also point to the negative role that education has played in many societies in fostering inter-ethnic hatred or resentment, um, false uh, you know, mis misreadings of, of, uh, of other groups and, and prejudice and, and uh, distortions of historical representation and so forth. So areas that, that I'm sure we're familiar with at school and, and university level historically. So there are a range of, within the causal uh, approach, some negative um, impacts that education, higher education, uh, can have on, on, on society. Moving now to the constitutive role, and these are ones that are much uh, more rarely thought of, even though the functions will be very familiar, but I think we don't often, so often think of education as having a constitutive relationship to development. The first one is about national status. Um, and, you know, perhaps this is an arguable point, but, but I can observe that education, whether it's through PISA results or international university rankings or you know, states will argue that these are instrumentally important because you know, they lead to economies. But there's a sense in which they're just important in themselves as a badge of honor. You know, countries want to have a good education system because it means they're good. It doesn't necessarily lead to any kind of economic progress. Um, and certainly get, you know, the obsession with getting a university into the top, whatever it might be, 20, 100, 200, in some cases 1,200, which is a struggle for the majority of countries in the world, um, is a task that's closely associated with, with national status and, and being a valued country. So there's a sense that having a, a, a substantial education, a, a respected education system, a high-quality one, is, is constitutive <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a status in that sense. We can think uh, of... The, of the upholding of rights to education as being constitutive of development, and, and this is linking into um, perennial debates in moral philosophy around deontological as opposed to consequentialist views. So, you know, a right, if a right is upheld, that's of value in itself, regardless of, actually, of what happens as a knock-on impact. So, if we can uphold the right to education, uh, or the right to higher education, although that's a, a debate for another day, exactly how that manifests itself. That, that can seem to be a, a, an achievement in itself. That is, that is upholding rights is, is an intrinsic good, uh, regardless of some of the knock-on benefits that we might identify. Capabilities and human development has a, a very nuanced understanding of these because it acknowledges both the intrinsic and the instrumental, uh, as well as constructive roles of many of these things, including education, democracy, and so forth. But there's certainly a sense in which uh, human development and, and the, the expansion of capabilities, the, the, the ability to pursue um, life goals that we have reason to value, is a good in itself. And it's, it's actually constitutive of, of a developed country to, to, for its population to have those enhanced capacities. Um, the final point here links back to the embodiment one that we were talking on, the, on, on a couple of slides ago. And that, that Simon has um, discussed in his work on the public good, and that's that's the role of, of universities as a public sphere, the potential role, a deliberative space, uh, and the idea that the kind of environment 
for critical inquiry and questioning and the creation of ideas is itself a, um, you know, it's a constitutive of the kind of society that they like. <coughs> I've, I've been speaking quite generally about education here. I think these points are valid to all of education, but there are some quite specific dimensions of higher education that are worth mentioning that, that affect how we think of some of these ideas. <coughs> The first, the first four of these largely relate to um, higher education's role in promoting particular values. So if you're thinking of SDG 4.7 around global citizenship, sustainable development and so forth, that I think schools are mainly had in mind, but there's also an element, that, an extent to which higher education is there. The fact that higher education is not universal in the vast majority of, uh, I'm not talking about Charles' conception, but actually for everybody. Uh, Non-compulsory, not for children, um, which of course affects how we think about transmission of values, um, and it's also highly specialised in particular disciplinary areas. It certainly problematises the role of universities in promoting particular societal values that might seem to be social cohesion or um, democratic values and so forth. It makes university... Uh, not a, a less effective necessarily, but a much more unpredictable and, and partial site for doing those things. And there's a lot of scepticism as, as to whether universities ever should be engaged in any kind of national project of values promotion. Um, a, a lot of debate, interesting debate. The most obvious difference to universities is that they're not only educational spaces, but also spaces for the production of knowledge, um, which creates a whole new set of roles in relation to development that we've already discussed. And the final point is around the autonomy of the university space. Even though some universities are more autonomous than others, the expectation is that there's a much greater distance from states and other patrons than uh, other levels of education. Um, Much harder to control (coughs) universities. Of course, all universities are controlled to some degree through funding mechanisms, regulations, and and, and so forth. But there's a much less direct control, at least... uh, some universities um, making some of these designs on their developmental role uh, harder to control. Moving to the last phase uh, of the talk now, and here I want to focus on um, the kind of university that might seem to be most propitious for development. So this is uh, the emblem of Um, University for Development Studies in Ghana uh, and its emblem is Knowledge for Service and this is an example of a a, a contemporary developmental university and if we're thinking about the proposed role of universities in development in in low and middle income countries uh, the kind of institution that supranational agencies are thinking of when their funding systems and national agencies are hoping for when they're they're giving the university the role uh, of of, of driver of development it's uh, very unlikely to be the new breed of entrepreneurial for-profit institutions whether face-to-face or distance that are um, churning out courses at a lower cost as possible trying to expand access to, to more groups on a, on, a, on a threadbare basis. It's very unlikely to be that kind of institution, generally carry out no research or, or community engagement. 
Um, and that the elite traditional institutions certainly have a role to play, but historically have had very weak links to um, their local communities and sometimes their national communities. And it's this model of university that would seem to be um, have the uh, criteria that are needed for actually bringing about the kinds of developmental impact, poverty reduction, um, enhancement of, uh, of developing prosperity, basic public services and so forth. <coughs> the developmental university has some interesting historical antecedents in different parts of the world. Um, the land-grant universities in the United States are often cited as an important early example of, of institutions that broke down the, the, uh, the walls of the ivory tower, engaged with agriculture and nascent industries, um, and had a different kind, a much closer relationship to, more porous relationship to local communities. Latin America is also a very important region in this regard. Um, <coughs> after a student rebellion at the University of Cordoba in Argentina in, in 1918, uh, there was a reform of the, of the institution and the national education system, and one that spread pretty much to the whole of the Latin American region, in public universities at least, and to some extent in, in private universities, at least in the, in the Catholic universities. And this was a reform that, um, again, transformed the institution to one that, that felt itself to be authentically public. And that's meant, meant not just being state-founded and funded, but also open to uh, all, in adverted commas, we know that in practice that doesn't mean uh, everybody, but at least theoretically open to all, with a much uh, more democratic governance, so um, community involvement, but also democratic elections within the institution, um, a, the put it, placing of community engagement on a par with teaching and research, again, at least theoretically, we know that in practice it might not actually have an impact, um, and a, a strong commitment to social justice in the functioning of the institution. Um, the third historical example, and that give, actually led to the name developmental universities in Africa in the post-independence period, where many countries that had inherited fledgling university colleges, they normally were, in, in, the, in the British colonies linked to the University of London and, and, and slightly different systems elsewhere, that they were inappropriate for the challenges that faced those countries in the post-independence period. And the notion of a developmental university emerged to try and describe the, the kind of role that these institutions could take on. And it was partly a question of indigenizing staff curricula debates that continue to this day in South Africa, of course, um, with the roads must fall, fees must fall, and, and the, the, the decolonization debates in South Africa. So there were some uh, initial steps in that regard, but also for creating a different kind of institution, <coughs> one where lecturers were very closely involved in policy formation, developmental projects, um, that curricula were oriented towards the kinds of professional needs and not towards medieval European history um, and research, applied research. And to some extent, African universities are still characterized by this way, even though they may lost, uh, have lost many of their developmental functions. There's still a very high level of consultancy work that's carried out by research active African researchers that's to some degree an um, inheritance from this period. So we've got um, what I see as being four characteristics of a developmental university. Um, service to society, um, 
it's an egalitarian approach. So that, that distinguishes a developmental university from uh, an enterprise university in the contemporary sense. I mean, an enterprise university uh, will serve society, but usually in response to market demand and in response to payment. So a developmental university I, is either state-funded, I suppose theoretically it could function on the basis of an endowment, but is a, is a giving, not a receiving institution. And it's one that's very much focusing on non-academic impact uh, and application of knowledge. So it's, a, it's, a, it's applied, um, not blue skies, curiosity-driven research for the most part. Oh, uh, this is um, my final slide, and I just want to finish off by raising some problems about this developmental model. So I've, I've problematized to some degree the notion of a, uh, of a linear causal relationship between education and development. Um, but, and, I, and as a result of that, I'd also like to problematize the notion of a developmental university, which, uh, harking back to the discussions right at the start, in, with, with one hat on, uh, I see as being a very positive thing. I think developmental universities are extremely important in many ways to address the severe material deprivations and, and other kinds of, of, of challenges that many countries face. But if we're thinking about the institution of university, I think we have to be cautious about some aspects of the developmental model. The first uh, relates in a much broader way to the notion of, of impact. Uh, which is a buzzword in, in this country um, and is increasing its, its leverage on research through the Research Excellence Framework and Research Council funding. Uh, and that's the idea that um, universities and, and their research need to have tangible, short-term, positive impact on non-academic communities. Of course, a very laudable aim. But I think we do need to question the extent to which universities can actually fulfill this role, or indeed should be doing, uh, given their particular characteristics. Very often universities are framed as entirely adaptable institutions, so they can simply be, and this is true of schools to some extent as well, they can simply be presented with a social, a societal goal, and deliver on that goal, um, as, as if they had no substantive content very hard to define a university, but it's, it's hard to contest the, the notion of a university as oriented, and, and drawing on Stefan Collini's uh, work here, that a university is, is an institution that, that is oriented around the development of human understanding through open-ended inquiry. I think it's very hard to contest that as a, as a basis of the idea of a university. However, However, multiple the forms that actually manifest that, that central aim. And given that that's the case, there are some, um, some uh, certainly some question marks placed on, on the ability of universities simply to respond to any kind of goal that are placed. And, and this is true of the employability research that um, Maya raised. Um, the assumptions in the employability literature of the um, uh, labour market uh, uh, function of universities seems to ignore the, this role of the university for, for developing critical inquiry. There's an extent to which universities require some distancing from society. Um, a porous boundary is 
a very positive thing, given the historical context of universities as being far too disassociated from local communities. So I think there's, there's a balancing act that needs to take place there, um, particularly to uh, impoverished communities that are very often in the immediate geographical um, area of, of a university, but across diverse communities in, in the country. So certainly universities need to open up more. But the dissolution of, of any membrane between the university and society may not be a positive thing. Uh, if, if we can see the university as, as a, a special space for critical reflection, and that if it's worthwhile engaging in this practice, then we might need to create a particular set of conditions. There might be transient ones, there might be temporary ones for the for all of society to move in and out at particular points in their life, um, but, but the creation of, of a particular environment that allows that kind of critical reflection to take place. And the final point, uh, and linking in again with the post-foundational uh, dimension that Maya raised, is that the developmental university assumes a particular form of development, um, or at least a form of development that's endorsed by a, a state, a nation state, or by the government, or by a majority opinion in the country. And clearly, that's problematic because, uh, again, we, ha we can't discuss this fully today, but the notion of development is highly contested, uh, what form that development might take. Um, but also because, presumably, it is the, the role, and, and perhaps the highest role, of a university to question and cast doubt on and to recast and reconstruct what that notion of development might be. So far from simply delivering on a, a, a task that's been given to the university, the university plays the role then of actually forging together with the rest of society what that notion of development might be. So um, providing that a, a space for um, the critiquing and the, the reconstruction of, of the very notion of development. There are also some significant epistemic blind spots involved. Um, the developmental university has no real critique of knowledge traditions, and I think that's an important area that we, we need to pursue to a much greater extent. While developmental universities were critical of a, of a kind of irrelevant colonial institution, there was very little questioning, at least in the early years, about the process of acquiring knowledge, uh, accumulating, and, and, uh, and what, what is considered to be valid knowledge at all. So the epistemic critique and the work of some theorists like Boven Bud and so forth are, are important for, for loosening up our conception and, and moving towards some kind of epistemic pluralism as well. Um, so, to summarise then, I, I'm not for a moment questioning the potential of universities to have a, a positive impact on society. On, on the contrary, I think that universities are absolutely critical for creating just, prosperous, vibrant, <coughs> culturally uh, interesting societies. I think universities are, are essential. As I said at the start, I think they're essential for every kind of society, and not just societies that might consider themselves to be wealthy enough to, to, um, to, to afford one. But the kind of impact that universities have on society is much more complex than is often assumed. 
And the idea that universities can deliver on predefined, tangible, short-term, immediate goals that states might have uh, is, um, it is certainly one which we have to take with caution. The processes of both teaching and research are complex, they're unpredictable, they're sometimes serendipitous, and that might make them frustrating for policymakers, but that is the nature of intellectual quarry. I think we have to accept that while valuing the role that universities play, that, that the ways that it's going to impact on society may not be in the, in the kinds of predictable linear ways that you might want. Thanks very much, uh, and look forward to the discussion.